If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to go to Mark's Gospel and the 10th chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the seats there, it's page 846. I'm going to read the text, and uh, we'll pray, we'll dive in. I uh, had intentions of having some cool slides to go with this message. That didn't happen. So you just get to look at me the entire time. And that graphic, that's it. That's the one thing we have. So it's either that or me. Okay, for the rest of the rest of the time. Here, here's the text. Mark 10, I'm going to start in verse 32. And they, this is Jesus in Jerusalem, and the disciples, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten, so the other ten disciples, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we want to pause. We've read your word, and we're going to talk about it now. And so whenever we do that, we want to ask for your spirit to guide the discussion. And so I have the immense privilege of talking about this text with my friends here today. And so I pray that as I communicate, that it would be accurate to the text and to the, your intention of this text. And I pray that I would I'd be clear in my communication 
Uh, communication can be difficult, and, and, and sometimes when we think we're being clear, we're not. And, and so, Father, I pray that your Spirit would guide this time right now where this, when I'm communicating here, would be accurate and clear as I've asked. But most importantly, we want you to be glorified in this. We're talking about your word. We're talking about Jesus and, and this conversation he had with the disciples. And we're talking about the lessons he was teaching them. We want to we make that application to us here today. And, and God, we need your spirit to do that. And so, Father, I pray for the next few minutes, your spirit would help us to focus and, and put aside the distractions that are probably coming our way and, and we're thinking about all the different things that we have to do and, and our responsibilities and maybe we're not feeling well or tired. Father, I pray that your spirit would just push all that aside and may we focus on you because, God, you are worth it. We read in Isaiah 53 of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. This, you are worth giving the next few minutes of our focused attention here. But Father, sometimes the Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we need you to guide us. We need you to give us focus and attention and good communication now. And so we're asking this for your name's sake and for your glory and for your honor. And uh, we're grateful. We're grateful that we can come to you with this request. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So if I was going to give you one sentence that, uh, you know, to summarize, it would be this. It would be humility calibrates the disciples' many moods, okay? Humility calibrates a disciple's or the disciples' many moods, okay? We're complex people. We, we're, we have the ability to have multiple emotions and multiple feelings, and often even at the same time. You know, there's times where we can feel happy and sad at the, at the exact same moment. We can feel energized and tired. We can feel uh, uh, joy and grief. I, I've just had a conversation with a couple individuals who they've lost a loved one, but someone who that they knew that they were in heaven. And, and the conversation that we had was, is that it, it's, you can have joyful grief. It, it, it's possible to to uh, uh, mourn and grieve yet with hope. And, and, and that's what Paul wrote. He says that you know, we as Christians, when we lose someone who knows Christ, we do grieve because there is that loss. Yet we sorrow, Paul said, uh, not like other people. We sorrow with hope. And other people don't have hope, but yet in Christ we do. And so we have multiple emotions. We have multiple feelings that we deal with on a daily basis. And, and, and have you ever, you know, been amazed like me at how fast you can go from one emotion to the next. And parenthetically here, okay, it's easy for us to start lumping into genders of like, okay, when we're more emotional and so, you know, he's talking to the women right now. No, guys, you and I have the same thing. We deal with, with roller coaster emotions at times too. It may look a little different, but we deal with it as well. Just this morning, just this morning, I went from uh, uh, a, a range of emotions and a, and a range of feelings uh, while we were getting ready and getting ready to come to church here. Um, in, in just a brief moment, it, was, it went from like a kind of a, a thankful, worshipful spirit to being very irritated to then having to ask one of my children to forgive me for being irritated. And I'm not going to tell you which one that is. If you really want to find out, you can ask them. I'm sure they'll wrap me out. Okay, but the point is, is that you go from this range of emotions, we have all this, 
And in this text that I just read, I see that there's this range of feelings, there's range of moods that are represented here in the text. And we're going to walk through that in just a few, we're going to walk through this over the next few minutes here, and probably you picked up on some of those as we went along. The first one is this idea of amazement. And you probably saw that in verse 32, they're walking down the road, and there's a group of disciples with him. And so we have the 12, but then we also, we, we, uh, we think that there's a larger group that's following as well at this time. And it's probably this larger group that he's talking about. Now, one of the reasons why we believe it's a larger group is because there's a phrase here where it says that then he turns to the 12 and begins to teach them. And so he's turning away from a larger group to speak to just uh, the 12 disciples. It's important for us to understand in the context of this book that this is the third time, this will be the last time, this is the third time in as many chapters, so we had one in eight, one in nine, and now one in ten, of when Jesus predicts his death to the disciples. It's an interesting pattern. I'm not going to take time to walk through and show you all the, all the passages there, but you can look at it. There's one in eight, one in nine, and one in ten. And, and it's the same thing we have Jesus talking about that he is going to die and, uh, and bear the sins of, of, of many and, he, and he's going to rise again. Then we have some type of proud or arrogant or selfish reaction by the disciples in all three chapters. Then we have Jesus teaching on service. Okay, So this is the last time this is happening. It's an important thing to understand that in order to understand the cross, you have to have a humble spirit. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Okay, There's no room at the cross for proud people because they don't think they need it. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's going through this, and this is a thing that the disciples are having a hard time getting, but he was trying to get them to understand in order to understand the message of the cross, in order to understand the purpose of Christ. Understand his kingdom, you have to have a humble spirit. And so that's why we're going to talk about that today in the second half of this message of how humility calibrates, and I chose that word intentionally, calibrates the many moods of a disciple. I mentioned the first one is amazement. There's these people that are walking with Jesus, and they're amazed. They're amazed at what he's done. They're amazed at his teaching. They're amazed at his boldness, and they're walking. They're going towards Jerusalem, and they are amazed at Jesus and how he taught and who he was. And that's a good thing, right? And so in every one of these moves that we're going to talk about, there's good and bad. And this one, there's good in being amazed at God. And so I hope that you are amazed at God today. I hope that you take time to think about how amazing God really is. It's easy for us to forget that. It's easy for us to, to, to skate past that. It's easy for us to get so caught up in, in the, mundane, uh, the, the mundane living that we find ourselves in all the time to stop, to, to, that we forget to stop and see how amazing God is. One of the things I wanted to do is I was going to show pictures of the cosmos and I was going to uh, paint some pictures with you a little bit about how big God is and how great God is. But then you also see it in in the smaller things as well. His creation, his design, he's amazing. Think about how he's interacted with you personally. Prayers he's answered. Prayers he hasn't answered. That later on you see you're glad that he didn't answer those prayers. The wisdom of God. The fact that he's forgiving of your sins. The fact that a holy God, a righteous, a just God, who has to condemn sin, 
that you as a sinner and I as a sinner, that we can have peace with that God. Not only that we have peace with that God, we get adopted into his family. How is that not amazing? How is it not amazing that the God of this world who spoke the world into existence, the God who, who led the children of Israel out of the promised land and, and rivers just and seas just parted so they walked in dry land, how the food was miraculously dropped from heaven for them, clothes did not wear out, sandals did not wear out as they wandered in the wilderness. We see the amazing work of God all throughout the Scriptures. How can we not be in awe of that? But then even we don't even have to just look at other people. We can look at our own lives, as I've mentioned before. You can see how God has provided for you. You know, when we go to someone like a place like India, and I was, I was having lunch with one of our church members uh, a couple days ago, and uh, I was showing him pictures of houses where people were living in India. And it's amazing what other people in this world live with, and that you and I would say that is just completely unacceptable or there's no way we could even fathom doing that, and we have been given so much more. When I think about the the books that we give to students over there, and they would have really no other way to get those things and how they treasure those things. God has given us so many study tools, so many opportunities to study His Word. He's given us His Word. That should amaze us. So there's good things. It's good to be amazed. It's a good mood of a disciple to be amazed like these disciples. But there's also could be a downside to that. And the downside comes is that when we're amazed at something, but we're not motivated to do anything about it. We can appreciate something, but not be committed to it. We can appreciate something and be in awe of something, but not want any part of it. I think going spelunking is an amazing thing. If you don't know what that is, it's when you crawl into a cave and you explore caves. I mean, there's some, I see pictures of things that people find and them down miles into the earth and things like that. That's an amazing thing. Let me tell you, I've got no, no desire to be part of it, okay? I, I, you're going into this little hole in the ground and, and crawling around there, banging your head against rock, and then, you know, the impending rock slide, you know, landslide that's going to come in and going to trap you in there and you're going to die a horrific death. Yeah, I have no desire for that, right? Okay? All right? It's amazing to me. Deep sea diving, going into caves in the ocean. That's awesome, seeing fish crawling. I got no desire to do that, swim down there and some Loch Ness monster eat me. No, thank you, okay? All right? But I'm amazed by it. And so you can be amazed and you can be in awe and you can, you can appreciate something but not be motivated or committed to it. Sometimes I think that we can be amazed at God and we can see how good he is and we can say, yeah, he is good, but not be committed to him. Or we can be, we can be uh, impressed by God and what he's done for us and what he's done for other people but not be motivated to love him and follow him. And so there's good and bad here. So one of the moods of the disciples here that they were facing here is that they were amazed, right? But did it lead to commitment? Did it lead to self-sacrifice? Did it lead to following Christ? The second one there is also found here in our text here in verse 32. It says, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Sometimes you think, okay, this amazement, afraid. How do those things go together? Well, you've got to remember what was happening here. 
Jesus is telling them, okay, he's already told them twice, he's about to tell them a third time. He's telling them that when he gets to Jerusalem, they're going to kill him. I mean, in this text, he goes on and he's very graphic. They're going to mock him, they're going to spit on him, they're going to flog him, they're going to kill him. And so this is what he says is waiting for him in Jerusalem. And you're one of his disciples. You're walking along with him. You're amazed at him. But would it not make sense that there is some level of fear with that? Oh, man, if, they, if they're doing this to him when we get there, what are they going to do to me? This is one of the reasons why all the disciples scattered. Remember when he was taken? Because there's fear there. Now, good and bad, right? There's, there's a healthy fear. And let me tell you, following Christ is scary at times. The things that God asks us to do sometimes do cause a little bit of fear. Sometimes he does ask us to do something that we're not completely comfortable with at first. And he will ask us to do that. So there's, there's a fear that's involved with that. But that fear can't be paralyzing. That's where's the problem. That fear can't be where we demand something different. Um, or a lack of trust. And so this is what these, these disciples are, are dealing with here. And so, you know, you know some, some of us, as we're, we're in the spiritual journey, we're trying to follow Christ, and we're trying to honor Him, fear trips us up. As a parent, um, fear, I, I understand fear on a, f- a far different level now that I've been a parent than I did before I was a child. Uh, before I had children. Um, because I don't want anything bad to happen to my kids. Right? I want to protect them. Okay? And so it's easy for me to fall into this idea of how can I protect them at all costs? Or, what if God has a plan for them that I would find dangerous? How am I going to deal with that? What if God calls us to a place what if this place becomes intensely hostile to the gospel? How am I going to deal with that? These are questions I think about. And if I'm not careful, and if I'm not going to the Lord in prayer about that, if I'm not recommitting in my fellowship of Christ and remembering what he's done for us and remembering the example of Christ, it'd be very easy for me just to want to protect them from any type of harm or any type of danger at all. When I was a youth pastor, um, it was, uh, I was a very young youth pastor. And I remember there was a girl in our youth group, and she came to me after uh, church service one time. And she said, Pastor Jeremy, she goes, I, I think that God wants me to, to be a missionary and go to another country and tell people about Christ. But, you know, as a youth pastor, I, I, was, I was pretty happy about that. I said, wow, that's awesome, and prayed with her and encouraged her. And I said, you got to tell your parents this, right? And she said, yeah, I plan to tonight, okay? Well, we, we had a Christian school uh, in that ministry as well, and so I saw a lot of the students I had uh, in ministry on Sundays and the weekends. I saw them also uh, during the school week because I, I, I taught in the Christian school and coached in the Christian school. So Monday comes and I see the student and I ask her, I say, hey, did you talk to your parents about this? 
And she, she was just distraught. She says, I did, and my mom told me there's no way I, sh- I could do that. I said, well, why not? She said, because she's afraid, one, she'll never see me or her grandchildren or something bad will happen to me. And anyway, this, is, this is a girl in high school that's having this conversation with her mom. Now, I, I think the parent was wrong, obviously. I can understand the fear. I can understand that. Um, you know, I, I hope to have a relationship with my children well into their adult years, you know, for the rest of their lives. I hope that we can be near each other, but, you know, my wife and I, we're not near our parents. And I asked my mom about that one time. I said, does this bother you? And she said, of course, Jeremy, I'd love to have you near us. She said, but the place, and my dad says the same thing. He says, the place you need to be is where God wants you to serve him at. And I think my mom said to me once, she says, we'll have all eternity together. Don't worry about it. We'll have all eternity together. And I'm so grateful for that. But, you know, this fear can grip us. This fear can paralyze us. This fear can cause this lack of trust in God. And this is what some of these disciples were dealing with. And this was personal safety, most likely. This was this idea of what's going to happen. This idea of they don't know, the, the uncertainty, the unknown. And, and if you're like me, you like to plan. And, you, and, and even if it's bad news, give me the bad news because I'll come up with a plan to deal with it. But this is unknown thing is so difficult. This is what these disciples were dealing with. And yet God often will ask us to operate within the unknown because he wants us to trust him. And not come up with our own plans. And so here's another mood here of the disciples. First we had amazement, then we have uh, this anxiety or fear. We need to move on. There's a third one because there's four total. There's a third one is this arrogance. I hope you chuckled a little bit. Maybe internally, at least. When we read this, when James and John come to Jesus... And they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay? Um, Man, this is, on one hand, there's good and bad, right? And and the good side, I mean, you got to appreciate the boldness of these people. Now, Matthew, when he's given this account, he says it's their mom that comes to them. And so people try to reconcile all that and everything. Either way, the kids and the mom were in on this request, okay? And um, I guess Matthew was probably right where the mom asked this question and the kids, uh, James and John, because they're adults at this point, that they were talking about it and mom, you know, said, hey, I'm going to take care of this for my kids. Because they're adult men. I don't think they put her up to it. I mean, that's the last thing you want as an adult man is your mom you know, going to bat for you, right? So this is probably what happened here. But there's this, so on the one hand, there's some boldness there, there's this desire, and, and you know, it wasn't all self-seeking because it was this idea of, we could say, they were so confident in Jesus's, um, uh, that his kingdom was going to prevail, right? They were confident that, that Jesus would win here when they're asking of this, right? 
So, I mean, we can look at that and we can say, well, that was good. They had faith in God and, and they believed in him. They just, they knew that he was going to die and they, or Jesus was saying that at least. And so, but he, they still believed somehow that Jesus would win and that this was going to be, uh, he was going to have this kingdom where he could uh, have James on one side and John on the other side, positions of honor, positions of great responsibility. This is what they wanted. They said, when you set up your kingdom, we want to be in on it. We want to be part of it. We want to be there. We want to have responsibilities. We want to be partnering with you on this. And so there's some good to see in this, but it is incredibly arrogant of James and John to assume this. First of all, in how they asked it, and we'll come back to that, but how they asked it, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. This is bad because it's self-promotion. This is this bad of self-sufficiency because then Jesus says, well, are you able to do what I'm about to do? And they're like, oh yeah, no problem. Yeah, we got this. Yeah, we can do this. And Jesus says, well, that's good because you are going to drink this. And, 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 and whenever in the Old Testament, talk about drinking the cup and everything, it was symbol, it was symbolic of the wrath of God, okay? And this is one of the reasons why the Lord's Supper here, when we have the cup here, is the cup of the new covenant, but it's saying that the wrath of God has been satisfied because we can drink the cup now because Jesus drank of the cup. This is the reason why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me because he knew that this was symbolic of the wrath of God being poured out upon him. We can drink here because Jesus already drank the cup, okay? And so that's what we're going to celebrate in a few minutes here. But here Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to be identified with me. You are going to deal with this. We know that from the book of Acts that James eventually is beheaded, right? If you didn't know that, spoiler alert, sorry. This is what happens, okay, in James' life. We know that, and so that they are going to have to, to uh, uh, suffer from, John is going to suffer during his life as well for Christ. He says, you are, if you're going to be attached to me, you are going to do that, but it wasn't what they were thinking. But there's this pride, this arrogance that they were dealing with here. Self-promotion, self-sufficiency. Yeah, we can do this without fully understanding what Jesus was asking and what Jesus was referring to. I need to move on because we need to get to the solution. In verse 41, we see the last mood that I want to talk about here. It says, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant. So there's anger there. So we've had amazement, we've had anxiety or fear, we've had arrogance or pride, and now we have anger. And when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And again, good and bad, right? I mean, there's, there's good anger, there's righteous anger, there's uh, uh, we should be angry when we see the helpless abused, we should be angry when we see God's name defamed. We think of uh, David, remember when he came out to see his brothers in battle and people were mocking God and and the enemies, the Philistines, were mocking God. And, and what did David say? He says, why should they do this? And he was angry that they were mocking God. And so that was, that was a righteous anger. So there is time for anger. However, when you look at these ten, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is a couple things. One, they were irritated. Okay? And this is a check that I do in my own heart. If I find myself getting angry about something, I ask myself, why am I angry about this? Am I angry because of what is happening is wrong and affront to God? Or am I just upset because it's now irritated me? It's complicated my life. And that was the reason why I had to apologize to one of my children this morning. It was because 
what happened needed to be dealt with. But what I was angry about was that I was inconvenienced and I was irritated. And so I tell you, when I preach to you guys, I mean, this is like fresh stuff here, okay? You know, these sermons, I told you this before, I preach sermons I need to hear here, okay? And so this is, I work through this, all right? And I know you're working through it as well. So this anger that we have, yeah, it can be righteous, but why are we getting upset? Is this because it's inconveniencing my life, or is it because it's an affront to God in his name? Those are questions we need to ask ourselves. James and John, they were upset, probably number one, that they didn't, I mean, the other ten were upset, probably because they didn't have a mom that went to bat for them either, or because they, uh, uh, they, they didn't think of it first, or they just thought that, now what is that going to do for us? And so they're angry with them. They're, they're upset with them. And so we have good and bad. Okay, now let's get to the solution here. So these are all the different emotions, all the different moods that kind of go through a disciple's life that we see in this one text of scripture here. We see all these things coming out here, but how do we calibrate that? Okay, we're, we're all going to have amazement at times, but again, there's, there's pitfalls with that. We're, we're just, we're amazed, but we're not motivated. We're, we're all going to have anxiety, and there's a healthy fear and healthy respect of things, but then it's paralyzing our lack of trust. We're all going to have this arrogance and pride, or this boldness, which is good, but then it'll turn into arrogance and pride, because there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. And so then we, we, you know, we're all going to have these times where we're going to be having righteous anger, but then it's going to be unrighteous anger as well. How do we calibrate that? How do, how do we go from these extremes? Or how do, we, how do we keep from going to all these extremes? This is where Jesus' example and his teaching here is the solution to calibrating these moods and these emotions. And that is humility. Jesus' example here is on display here. And this is going to be explicit in the teaching of it. First of all, in his response to the, the, the request of John, uh, James and John here. First of all, I told you we're going to come back to this. They come to, the, and, and notice how they ask the question. We want you to do whatever we ask. Well, I, you know, for those of you parents, if your kids came to you, okay, or maybe you're in the workplace and you supervise people, and one of the people that you're supervising comes to you and says, hey, I want you to say yes to whatever I ask. Okay? That's how they start the question. What is your response going to be? <laughs> We're not going down this road. <laughs> you know, that ain't happening. But, but if for Jesus, think about it. Mean, he says, well, what do you want? He's just patient with them. If it were me, okay, he says, I want you to do this. I'm going to demand that you do this. I would have said something like, you want to start that question over again? <laughs> you, 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 let's back this thing up, okay? Because, you know, do you care to rephrase that question? All right? Um, wait a minute here. I'm not going to just blanketly say, yes, I'm going to do whatever you ask. But Jesus is patient with them. He just says, well, what do you want me to do here? He doesn't rebuke him for it. He doesn't say, how dare you talk to me this way? Do you know who I am? How dare you come to me and demand that I do whatever? He says, okay, what do you want? He's just patient. He's just very kind and very loving towards his disciples. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And that comes from humility. That comes from confidence in who he is in Christ or in God, in his position, in his relationship with the Father. But we also see his example, of course, in the sacrifice. In verse, he talks about in verse 42, he brings him aside 
And he starts talking to him about this idea of humility and service. And he says, look, the other people, the people of this world, the Gentiles, he says, they, they lord all this stuff over him. They lord authority and, and all that. He says, but it shall, verse 43, it shall not be so among you. He says, if you're part of me, if you're associated with me, this is not how we live. We live humble, self-sacrificing lives. We are servants, is what he's saying. And so not only does he show it in his patience, but then in his explicit teaching, here he says, whoever will be great among you must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all, a servant of all. This is the reason why we say love God, love people, serve the world. We should be servants of all, of all people. It doesn't mean allegiance to everyone. It just means we have a humble disposition and a willingness to self-sacrifice for the good of other people. This ransom here, for even the Son of Man, verse 45 he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many here. So Jesus' example is on display here about his, he's giving up his life. He's giving up his throne in heaven. He's giving up personal comfort. He's giving up personal health for the sake of many, for the sake of us, if we know Christ. The sake of us, for our sake, so that we could have forgiveness of sins. He gave up comfort. He gave up his positions of authority. He gave up the place where everyone knew him and respected him and, re and reverenced him in the angelic host in heaven. And he came down to this earth where people despised him and rejected him like we read in Isaiah 53. No wonder why we find out later on that the angels are curiously looking down at this thing called the world because they were in a position where they were worshiping Christ and they were reverencing Christ and they see who he is. And then we as humans, we despise Jesus and we reject him and we scorn him, we mock him and we spit on him and then we killed him. This is what Jesus did for us. This is the ultimate service, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate example there. And so this is the solution, what Jesus is saying, how we live our lives. And so I said before, this example, this humility has a calibrating effect in all the different moods that we, we struggle with. This idea of being a servant, this idea of humility calibrates the moods of a disciple here. And so if I see myself as a servant, if I see myself as someone who is, I am here to serve others, I am here to love Christ, and part of I do that is imitate him and follow his example and give of myself for other people. If I see myself in that light, then when I'm amazed, that is going to motivate me to serve. It's, it's going to motivate me to sacrifice for other people rather than not be committed. Because if I see myself, I'm a servant. That's my identity. And I could be amazed at God that he's allowed me to do that and I can have that confidence and so I don't need to be anxious since the success of the, st the estate does not depend upon a servant right you know I mean the new movie out Downton Abbey right some of you seen it I haven't seen it uh, I saw part of the show you know I was confused half the time but hey one of the things I know about the show is that it's, it's kind of cool because they give the storyline of all the servants as well as the nobility in, the, in, in, that, in that show. But the, the success of the estate was not upon the servants. I mean, if the estate went under, it was over the Duke or Lord or whatever the guy's name was, I can't remember his name, uh, who was in charge of that place. 
when we see ourselves as servants, we don't have to be worried. We don't have to be anxious because Christ is, is guaranteeing the success of his plan. The, the, the success of God's plan is not on your shoulders and is not on my shoulders. So we can just serve. We're free to serve. And so we don't have to have that anxiety or fear. This is how it calibrates it. I can be bold in my service, but pride and arrogance is removed if I see myself as a servant. I can be bold and I can serve, but I understand that's who I am. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Doulos is the Greek word. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, and so I'm just going to do what he tells me to do, and there's no pride, there's no arrogance there. I can be bold in that, but yet it can be, because it's not self-sacrifice. It's not, self, or self, uh, it's not self-sufficient. It's not self-promotion like James and John. It's just serving. So when we see ourselves as, as servants of Jesus Christ and we have this, this humble spirit, it frees us from all this. And then when it comes to anger, I'm not unrighteously angered with others because I'm not demanding what they have. I'm not demanding things because I, I know that everything I have is a gift from God. And so if, if I see myself as someone who's just blessed of God, that I can serve him, and that's all I am, then I don't have to be angry when someone else gets something or someone else gets a blessing that I wanted or someone else has an easier life than what I have. I don't have to be upset about that. I don't have to be because everything I have is grace anyway. Everything I have is just a gift from the Lord and I can serve him. And so the the point is, is that we have to have an attitude of humility and service and just being willing to give of ourselves uh, in, uh, for the sake of the gospel and for, for in, our, in our relationship with Christ. And so we have this idea of Jesus going, the ultimate example of humility, the sacrifice he's given. What that needs to do is it needs to change our core identity. You see, if we see ourselves as someone who is just here to serve, we're free. We're free from all the, 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 the extremes of the emotions and the extremes of the moods. We can still have the amazement. There's still time for it. There's still places for anger. There's still places for some fear and some, uh, um, whatever the third, fourth one was, um, arrogance uh, or boldness, not arrogance. We see this, but our core identity has changed because of Christ. So if I was going to give you some homework, this is what it would be. Pray for humility. Make this a matter of your prayer that you pray for humility. One of the things I pray for almost every day is humble confidence and holy boldness. Those are the things I pray for. Because I want to be confident as a leader because if you're not confident as a leader, no one wants to follow. But I don't want to be an arrogant leader. I don't want to be a proud leader. So I pray for humble confidence. And I want to be bold. But I understand that boldness can then just turn into arrogance. So I pray for holy boldness and humble confidence. Let me encourage you to to pray for those things. Uh, Find a way to tangibly serve someone else this week. Some of you did that yesterday for my family. Now that was last week, so it doesn't count. Okay? (laughs) Right? (laughs) But, um, But I'm just saying that that was huge. That was huge. We worshiped Christ because of what many of you did for us yesterday. We talked about this as a family. We prayed together as a family. We said, Lord, thank you for friends. Thank you for a church that helped us out. We, so 
the many of you who showed up to help us load and unload and all that, you, you caused us, the Scott family, to worship Christ yesterday. So thank you. Thank you for that. Serve someone else this week. And then take time to be amazed at God. He's a ransom for many, is what he says. And so the question is, is that you? Are you part of that ransom? And we do that. You, you can be that if you, follow, if, if you ask God to forgive you your sins and you follow him. It really is that simple.